Pray with me one more time, and then we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 11 today. Father God, we just thank you for this moment to come together as your people, to hear from you through your word. Lord, we know that you primarily communicate to us through the Bible. And we really see it and understand it and trust it and are transformed by it when your spirit shows up and it's coupled with your word, that's where we're changed. And so, Spirit, we invite you to come and do that, those good works that, that really only you can do. Lord, give us eyes to see. Convict us where we need conviction. Encourage us where we need encouragement. So, Spirit, come and, and fill this place and, and do what you do. We know that you're the Lord of the heart. You're the one that transforms us from the inside. Lord, I pray that from this passage that, that we see the, the virtues, the, the real blessings of waiting for you for salvation. Lord, as we wait for you, help us to experience hope and help us to experience happiness. Lord, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, heavy is the head that wears the crown. At least that's what Shakespeare's King Richard thought. And in the visitation of the winds who take the ruffian billows by the top, curling their monstrous heads and hanging them with deafening clamor in the slippery clouds, that with the hurly death itself awakes, canst thou, O partial sleep, give thy repose to the wet sea boy, in an hour so rude and in the calmest and most stillest night, with all appliances and means to boot, deny it to a king, then happy low lie down, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. I think Nisi's group could pull that off a little bit better, but King Saul is experiencing that moment, that reality of, of heavy is the head that wears the crown. In other words, King Saul is off to a rocky start. If you're new with us, we're in this study this summer of the life of King Saul. And, and up to this point, he's been off to a rocky start. You, you see, this story is, is a morality tale where it's comparing the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of the word. And what's happened up to this point is the wisdom of the world has told the Israelites that, listen, if you have a king then everything's going to work out. All the other nations around them had kings, and so they, they clamored for a king. But in doing that, they, they were really uh, denying the, their trust in the king of kings. But, but Saul is, is off to a rocky start. Like if you remember from our, our first uh, message with him from chapter 9, Saul really had one job, right? He was to be a keeper of donkeys, but he wasn't very good at it, right? He lost the donkeys. And then he had a second job, go find the donkeys, but he couldn't find the donkeys. And the reason for that was, is he was, we saw that he was quick to quit. He was a poor planner. He showed spiritual apathy. He kind of lacked intellectual intrigue that a leader and a king should have. And, then, and last week in that moment where he was anointed king of Israel in front of the entire nation, this, this high moment in his life, he was paralyzed by fear and he was hiding in the luggage so up to this point king saul has been off to a, a rocky start heavy is the head that wears the crown 
This is why this chapter is so important, is because there's going to be times in your life when you're off to a rocky start, right? Like, like there's sometimes we're going to get in over our heads, just like King Saul was. Like sometimes we're going to stumble, and instead of getting back up, we're just going to completely fall. But before we dive into 1 Samuel 11, I want to make a few contextual points about things that are going on here. First off, this is a morality tale. Like, like there's things in here that we're supposed to see as virtuous things, but things in here we're supposed to see as vices. We're supposed to do it this way at some parts and, and not this way at other parts. And that's kind of the work of this passage is, is that we're supposed to, to mind those truths. And so it takes wisdom and discernment to understand this. And wisdom is a theme that kind of runs through this because what, what the nation and what Saul have, have done up to this point is they've really trusted the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world has said, hey, you should have a king. And so in doing that, again, they, they deny the sovereign rule of the king of kings over their nation. And, and so what God does is he gives them over to that. He says, you want a king? I'll give you a king. And he's going to look, he's, he's going to check all the boxes according to the wisdom of the world. He's going to be tall. He's going to be handsome on the outside. But, but as we've seen over the last couple of chapters, there's, even though maybe he looks the part on the outside, there's some things on the inside that are off. There's some things about his character that are off. So he's all style but no substance. He's tall on the outside, but he's small on the inside. But we have to be careful with King Saul because there's, I think, a temptation to kind of put him in this category of a fool, meaning that like everything that he does is ridiculous. Everything that he does is bad or off. Now, it's certainly true that that King Saul is kind of this precursor to King David. And King David is this high point in the monarchy, and we're going to have the Davidic covenant and all these great things. But if you know anything about King David, it's not all positive with King David, right? And the same thing with King Saul, it's, it's not all negative. So that's kind of the work with King Saul is to kind of mind the good and end the bad. Now up to this point, Saul has been off to a rocky start, but, but things are about to take a turn. Things are about to get positive for him. Like the circumstances are going to get better for him. But that's not really because of King Saul himself. What we're supposed to see is that God does not abandon his covenant promises and that he will eventually work salvation through his people, and for his people. There's kind of four turns to this story today. And what I want you to see is, is first that we are to this call to understand that burdens will persist. We need to understand that in this life, that burdens will persist. But I also want you to see, number two, that we're to believe that the Spirit also persists. And therefore, as a result, we're to hope in salvation, and we're to rejoice in his salvation. Again, the first thing I want you to see is that you should understand that burdens persist. Look at verses 1 to 4. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all of Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. Then the messengers came to Geba of Saul. They reported the matter to the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud." 
1 Samuel is kind of in a period of transition in the nation of Israel. It's kind of transitioning from the time of judges to the time of the kings. And, and in this transition, the, the, the nation is in the promised land. They've come out of the wilderness. They've come out of slavery. And they're kind of existing primarily as 12 tribes in the land of Israel. But, but this time of, of judges, it's really marked by a lack of unity and marked by moral decay. Now, there's some parallels between 1 Samuel 11 and then uh, Judges 19 and 20. Judges 19 and 20 is one of the most horrific stories in all the Bible. In that passage, a poor woman is abused and killed, but, but there's no real mechanism to bring justice in that moment. So what happens in that moment is, is there has to be this kind of rally cry, this call to battle to bring justice in that moment. And that really gets to the heart of, of why they felt a king was needed. If, if they could have a king, they would have defenses, they would have justice. But, but here in this moment, uh, there, there is a rally cry that needs to happen, similar to Judges 19 and 20. Now, Nahash, very little is known about King Nahash. Now, now we obviously know that he was one of the, uh, the kings of the Ammonites. We know that his name meant serpent, so he's probably a wicked fellow. But, but the, uh, the, there, there's less known about also the Ammonites than the Philistines. So if you have a kind of a cursory reading of the Old Testament, you've probably heard about the Philistines. The Philistines were kind of the, the natural enemies of Israel. But in addition to the Philistines, there's all these other nations around Israel. And at different points, they're all enemies of Israel. Now, if you're looking at a map of the, the, the modern nation-state of Israel, that it's basically the same landmass as the ancient state of the kingdom of Israel as well. And the Philistines were, were uh, uh, to the west, kind of where we have the Gaza Strip today. They were kind of on that part uh, of, uh, related to the nation of Israel. So when they attacked, they were coming from the west. The, the Ammonites were on the other side. They were coming from the east. So they were kind of coming from the, the modern state of the nation of, of Jordan. So these are, uh, these are folks that came from the east. And they come and they attack this town, Jabesh-Gilead. Now again, this is very ancient Israel. So this kind of predates King David. It predates, you know, David coming in and taking over the Jebusite city, which becomes Jerusalem, and then setting up King David, and then the temple follows. So this is even before all of that. And so that's probably why we just really don't know much about Jabesh Gilead. But it's this town where Nahesh and the Ammonites come in and attempt to conquer. Now, the really kind of wild, gory part of this story is is in, instead of fighting him, they say, listen, let's just make a treaty. We'll surrender. But he makes this strange request, or strange to our ears, that he says, listen, I'll go along with it, but I'm going to gouge out all of the right eye. Now, that's pretty wild and, and pretty awesome and crazy. But there's, now he notes in there that the reason he's doing that is, is order, in order to mock the entire nation of Israel. But there's some functional things going on there as well. You see, if you lost your right eye, if you're a right-handed soldier, which most of them were, it, it, it would affect you in battle. So it would really uh, uh, cause them to be disabled in battle. So they wouldn't be as strong to fight back. But also there was probably another functional uh, aspect to it, that even though maybe they were diminished as warriors, that they could still work basically as slave labor for him. So that's what Nahesh is setting up here. And, and the people of this town, that they really do... What the only move they had to play, they, they stall. And so there's some wisdom in this tactic, but, but their strategy is to stall. And the idea is, is listen, we'll go get help, okay? But, but what they tell him is, is listen, we, we will go down without a fight, 
if you give us seven days to see if we can garner help. Now, now here's the gamble for Nahesh and the Ammonites. It's that he has been watching these 12 tribes during the time of Judges, and he realizes they're very disorganized, they're kind of a mess, and his gamble is, I don't think they're going to be able to garner help. So he goes along with it. So the balance for him is, I could have an entire city and, and no shots fired, if you will. Like, like none of my soldiers are going to die, but I could take over this entire city. So he goes along with it. And so the messengers go to Saul's town. Now, the wisdom of the world up to this point has said that, listen, if you could just get a king, if you could have a human king, Israel, then you, you, would, have, uh, you would have justice, you, you would have protection and salvation from your oppressors. And if anybody's watching here, that did not happen, right? But like here is this, up to this point, they, they've gone uh, according to the wisdom of the world. They've gotten a king, but the problems still persist. Even though they have a king, the Ammonites have still come and they've still threatened to, to conquer. So just having Saul anointed with the title of king, it doesn't stop their problems. Now, I think that's the first little lesson for us in these opening sections is... It is, that, it is that problems will always persist. And it's not that we shouldn't try to make the world a better place. We, we should certainly try. But, but problems are always going to persist in this world. You see, no human effort is going to completely and ultimately fix this world. Just to be abundantly clear, if your candidate wins, all your, not all your problems are going to be solved. You see, if you get that job... Uh, then you might believe that all your hopes are going to be realized. They're not going to. But listen, if, if, if you're married uh, to that person, then you might be tempted to think, well, then all my dreams will be fulfilled. That, that, that's not going to happen. You, you see, the wisdom of the world it enables us to be hopeful. It enables us to be happy. But, but it also is a call to be realist. Okay? We're to be realists. We're to reject these, these crazy utopian ideas that never work out well. We're to also reject the cynical dystopian ideas. We're to be realists. And our hope is in heaven. Our hope is in King Jesus returning and setting up a, a, a new heaven and a new earth. And we believe in that because we believe problems will always persist. But what do you do in the face of those persisting problems? In other words, how do you respond to the brokenness of this world? Well, I think we see in 5 to 7 that we're to believe that the Spirit also persists. Look at verse 5. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. And he took a yoke of oxen, and he cut them into pieces, and he sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man." The messengers arrive at, at Saul's town, and they give their report, and it cuts people to the heart, and they're heartbroken, and they begin to weep. They're lamenting the injustice. But, but Saul, he's, he's out working in his family fields, and, and there's a bit of a debate about these passages on what's he doing out there. 
Like, why is he out there farming instead of being a king ruling? And I think there's some debate on here. Is this a, a virtuous thing or, or is this a vice that, that is going on in his life? Like, like, shouldn't he have been doing what kings should be doing? Like, shouldn't he have been out there ruling and setting up a government and building and training an army and establishing fortifications all over the nations? I, I think what this scene shows is the smallness of Saul's mind and his lack of vision to lead. I think that's what's going on him uh, in his life about being out there. But, but then there's this change, right? It says that the Spirit rushes on him. You see, even though maybe Saul is weak, and maybe Saul is demonstrating that he's maybe not a very good king, at least at the start, then the Spirit shows up. You see, the, the good news in all of these stories is not Saul. It's the Spirit. See, the good news in this passage is that even though problems persist, the Spirit also persists. You see, even though there will always be problems in the world, the Spirit is also always working, right? Like, like even though there is this persistent brokenness in the world, there, there's also this persistent Spirit that is always working. So the good news of this passage is that the Spirit of God has rushed upon him. The Spirit is the good news here. Now, kids, let's stop at this moment and, and unpack, okay, who's the Spirit, now, the Spirit is one of the, the three persons of the Trinity. He's a person. He, he's not like, a, like the force or something. He's a person. Now, the, the God the Spirit is not God the Father, and He's not God the Son. And God the Son is not God the Spirit, and He's not God the Father. And God the Father is not God the Spirit, and He's not God the Son. But we're monotheistic. God is one. But, but he is a, He's a person. He, God doesn't exist as like different modes at different times. It's called modalism, and that's a heresy, Okay. But, but he, he, he is this one who is equal with the Father, he's equal with the Son, and he's very active today. And in fact, Jesus said that he would send his helper. He describes the Spirit as his helper in John 14. But what the Spirit does is primarily four things. He empowers, he purifies, he reveals, and he unifies. Now, in this scene with Saul, he, he does a couple of those things. He reveals and he empowers That's what the Spirit does when he rushes upon Saul. He reveals and then he empowers. John 14, 26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Therefore, the good news of the Spirit is that he reveals the Word of God. He reveals what is, what is true and right and good and beautiful, specifically in the Bible. That's what the Spirit is in the business of doing. He's, he gives us eyes to see the truth of the gospel. So the good news of 1 Samuel 11 is that no matter what is false or wrong or bad or ugly in this world, the, the Spirit persists in those things. So even though all that might be going on around us, what the Spirit is doing is He's giving us eyes to see what is true and right and good and beautiful, and He's more powerful than anything in the world. Isn't that good news? Like, what is false or wrong or bad or ugly in your world? Whatever that is, do you believe that the Spirit is more powerful than that thing? Do you you think the, the, the Spirit is more powerful? And as a result, this is the way you can measure it. Are you pursuing him for help? Are you pursuing him as the solution? Are you asking him to reveal what is true and right and good and beautiful? He reveals, but also he empowers. Jesus also said in John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. 
The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So again, the, the spirit comes and he empowers life. You see, he's a force that is stronger than death. Any kind of death that you want to think of, physical death, emotional death, spiritual death, the spirit is more powerful. He brings life into all those moments. He empowers where we are weak, he is strong. And again, that's the good news of 1 Samuel 11, is that the spirit shows up in the face of this powerful foe. The spirit is more powerful. He's stronger than what is weak. They've got this very weak king, but the spirit comes and empowers him. And he's going to deal with this powerful army. He's going to be more powerful than the Ammonites. So he gives us strength and he gives us life. And again, he's more powerful than any power in the world. Therefore, what foe are you facing right now? How are you weak compared to that foe? Do you believe that the spirit is more powerful than that foe or, or the flesh that wages inside of you? Are you pursuing him for help? Are you asking him to empower you in the ways that you're weak? Going back to Saul, what, what he does by cutting up that cow and, and sending it around Israel, is this is, a, this is a call to arms, right? This is a call to, to battle. Now, there's some, I think, some interesting nuance that's going on here. You know, is, is this this rush or, or, or heavy-handed uh, approach, or is, or is this something virtuous going on here? A couple of things to notice. In, in verse 6, it says that the Spirit of God rushes upon him. Now, some have said, well, that's, that's different than the previous chapter where it's the Spirit of the Lord. So, so maybe there's something off here. And, and further, Saul seems to react out of anger, but, but maybe this is a righteous indignation. And also, his warning is pretty heavy-handed, but, but maybe that's what they need. Like, like the people have asked for just clear, strong leadership in the face of injustice. So, so maybe that's what's going on here. I, I lean towards believing that this is actually a good moment in Saul's life. Like this is a virtuous thing that's happening in Saul's life. Again, there's parallels between 1 Samuel 11 and then Judges 19 and 20. And one of the, the real clear parallels is, is after that poor woman is murdered, this is gross, but what they do is they, they cut up her body and they send it around the nation to demonstrate how horrible this thing is that happened to her and, and as a call to arms to come in. I think that's probably what's going on in the back of, of Saul's mind is he's saying, listen, I, I, there's an injustice happening and I need to, to rally the people to come. I, I need a, a call to arms, so I'm going to do something similar. So I, I think that displays that there's probably some some kingly wisdom going on here. And further, uh, they had cried out for a decisive leader. And I think what we see here is that Saul finally is wisely being decisive. And also, I think what he's displaying here is some, is some righteous indignation. Now listen, the vast majority of the time where you get really angry about something, that's probably sinful anger. But, but there is this category of righteous indignation. This is something that we should be mad at. There's an injustice happening here. But I also want you to notice one other thing. He, he utilizes, I think wisely, the prestige of the prophet Samuel here. Notice that he doesn't say, King Saul tells you to come and follow me. Notice what he says here. He, he references the prophet Samuel. Do you see that? He, he's referencing both of them because Samuel has prestige with the people that he doesn't have. So I think what he's displaying here is a lot of wisdom in this call to arm. And notice, we're going to see that he accomplishes his goal. I think this is a good moment in the life of King Saul. I think there's a lot of good things 
going on here. But problems do always persist. But in the face of that, this powerful spirit also persists. Like, we're to heed this call of arms, like the ancient Israelites, we're to heed a call to fight in the face of persistent foes. Listen, you know, your battle is not going to be the Ammonites. But what does it look like to believe that the Spirit persists? Well, I think it's two things. And I think the first thing we see here is that this is a call to hope in salvation. Look at verses 8 to 11. When, when he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000. And then the men of the tribe of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have your salvation. When the messengers came and, and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Verse 10. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. Verse 11. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. King Saul's call to arms, it might have been controversial, but it was effective, wasn't it? This huge group gathers to fight. And in fact, this is the second largest group that has ever gathered to fight in the history of the nation of Israel up to this point. The only group that was larger was that group in Judges 20 that, that attacks the tribe of Benjamin. Now, if you're trying to maybe get a visual of this, guys, maybe you'll get this. The, the old movie Braveheart. If you remember old ancient Scotland, the, the nation is kind of divided into tribes and clans and families. This is kind of a similar setup. You got tribes, you got clans, you got families. And, and, and it takes this, uh, it, it, it takes a, making a constant case for the virtue of this fight in order to keep everybody together. And, and that's what he does. He kind of keeps everybody together, all these different tribes, all these different clans, all these different families. But when they do come together, it is this enormous fighting force. This, this huge manpower comes together to attack the city. It's a great display of his leadership. Now, in addition to the huge number of fighters, we keep seeing the wisdom of Saul here. And we see it here in, in, a, in a trick uh, that is played upon the Ammonites. So he sends the messengers back, and, and they tell everybody in the city, salvation is coming. But, but then they turn to the Ammonites and say, hey, listen, um, we're going to surrender to you. But will you just give us one more night with both of our eyes? And so what the Ammonites do, they say, awesome. And what is assumed here is probably they begin to celebrate, okay? They begin to party. This probably comes into a drunken party. But really what is going on here is, is it's the idea that they begin to kind of lay down their guard, okay? And, and that's the real, the, the real uh, kind of sly or wise or crafty battle plan that happens here is this initial trick. But, but it's, 
it's, notice that it's an effective battle plan. He divides them into, into three companies, and so they're attacking from, from d- three different places. And so not only is there a chaotic scene because they're attacking sometime between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m., th- these guys are, are barely awake. They, they're maybe hungover from the night before, and, and then they're getting attacked from all these three different sides. And so what follows is that the plan works and the victory is decisive. Salvation was indeed theirs. If you look up to verse 3, the people sought salvation. That's what they sought. And then if you skip down to verse 9, King Saul promised salvation. And then here in this section, salvation is indeed theirs. Quite a turn of events, right? Pretty amazing turn of events. Like everything up to this point is not going well. And then you have this amazing victory. What I think these verses remind us is, is that we should always hope in future salvation. Now, again, I want to be clear. Christians should be realist, okay? Like, like we don't believe in like cat poster platitudes, right? That's not what Christianity is. Like we ground our faith in truth, okay? This isn't this, this baseless like mindfulness, just think good thoughts. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is wisdom. It's grounded on truth, but it's also hopeful. Do you see that? Like we should be hopeful because God is a God of salvation. Hope is this kind of present positive outlook or attitude or perspective that you just kind of walk around with based upon your belief that you have a good future. If you believe you have a good future, even in the face of something hard, you're hopeful, right? You, you have this, this positive attitude. Are, are you hopeful? Like Christian, you should be hopeful because God is the God of salvation. He's the one who brings victories, right? Now listen, we know how the story ends. So we always have, that's always our trump card. We know about heaven. We know what happens on the other side. But, but I'm here to tell you, God also brings victories in this life. In other words, your, your present sin struggle, struggles, they're not determinative of your future. All right? You're not enslaved to those things. You're not in bondage to them. Your business can turn around. Like your marriage can improve. You can become a better friend. You see, God can use you, even you, to lead someone to saving faith in Christ. Maybe you've been a disaster about that in the past, but you can grow in those areas. You can become a great disciple maker. So you can mature. You can have a good future. God is in the business of giving you salvation. Now, again, hear me. The gospel is this call to, to be realist, but to be hopeful realist. Hear me. Maybe the cancer gets you. But hear me, maybe it doesn't. And, and, and hear me further, even if it does, something better awaits you, something better than what you could ever experience in this world. God is a God of salvation. Sometimes the Ammonites don't get away with it. God can turn a scared, tall, but small young man into this wise warrior king. Do you see how God can bring salvation? The wisdom of the world enable, uh, wisdom of the word enables us to be hopeful. We're to be realist, but we're to be hopeful. Even when the Ammonites attack, and even when the, the leadership seems weak, hope and salvation. But this final turn is also a call to rejoice in his salvation. 
Look, look at 12 to 15. When the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they, they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. King Saul continues to display great wisdom and great righteousness. Over and over again in this chapter, we see the virtues of the new king. And the Israelites see it too. Like they're so impressed by his performance that day that they just want to confirm him once again as king. He's had a private anointing in the last chapter, a public anointing in the last chapter. But now that they, this is sort of like a, a confidence vote. That they want to just publicly once again rejoice in their new king. This is what they have longed for. He's done a great job for him and they want to rejoice in him. But then Saul does something very wise something very righteous. He, he turns all that zeal to the Lord. Like notice that like in their fervor, like they want to, to kill all the people that ever opposed Saul in the past. Do you remember that from the end of the last chapter? There were some that recognized this guy's not off to a good start and they're not really gonna follow him. Well, the, the faithful ones now, they wanna bring all those people before Saul and, and they want them dead. But Saul very graciously uh, redirects that fervor. He responds with grace. He's still filled with the Spirit. And also he, he turns their eyes up to rejoice in the Lord. Don't rejoice in me. He says in verse 13, Today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Saul could have had his pound of flesh that day. And he extends grace. He, he could have just basked in the praise of all the people. But what does he do? He graciously turns their eyes up to the Lord. He recognizes that they should give credit where credit is ultimately due, and that is the Lord. It's the Lord who has brought salvation. Instead of receiving rejoicing, he rejoiced in the Lord, and he, then he turned all of God's people to then rejoice in the Lord with them. What a remarkable moment in the life of King Saul. Isn't this a glorious moment? Clearly God is with him in this moment. And what do they ultimately do? They worship. If you were with us earlier in the year, we, we looked at uh, Leviticus and we looked at the offerings. And Leviticus 3 talks about the peace offering. The, the peace offering was this voluntary offering in, in, in where they offered either cattle or sheep or goats. And it was a thanksgiving offering. It was to, to give thanks to God for something. Now, now typically, and many times, there was a vow that was accompanied with this. They, they made a, a vow of faithfulness to the Lord. But always in that moment, there was this fellowship meal. So, so 1 Samuel 11, it just closes with this rejoicing party. Like think VE Day or, or ticker tape parade. This is this glorious, high, rejoicing moment in the life of Israel. 1 Samuel 11, it closes with this statement, Israel rejoiced greatly. Salvation was indeed theirs. Friends, not only is the gospel a call to be hopeful realist? It's a call to be happy realist. And again, it's not based on uh, like baseless optimism. It's not about just like, you know, focusing on the bright side of things. 
It's more substance. It's deeper than that. 1 Samuel 11, it reminds us that God is in the business of bringing salvation. And when he does, we're to find happiness in it. Do you find happiness in that? Like, like, do you joy in the ways that God has matured you or preserved you? Do, do you stop and recognize that? Do you give credit where credit is due? Do you, do you praise him for that? Do you sing louder because he's turned you from sinner to saint? Do you smile, remembering the promises that he's made and then the promises that he's kept? Like, even if, uh, you know, even in your sorrows, can you sing, it is well with my soul? Like, does your heart burst with, I love you, Lord? Like, do you long to sing hallelujah for the cross? Like, do you have that type of joy? No matter how hard it gets, rejoice in your salvation. When you see him working, rejoice in your salvation. And, and, and hear me, I want to challenge you on this. Intentionally look to see the wisdom of the world and see how it's happening right here, right now, and then rejoice in the God of your salvation for it. In other words, go deeper into the word, go deeper into the gospel, go deeper into sound uh, theology in order to rejoice in his salvation. Kids, uh, Bethany Hamilton was 13 years old when she lost her arm in a shark attack. Hopefully you've already gone to the beach this summer. Hopefully you're not about to go to the beach. Pretty rocky start to the teenage years, wouldn't you say? Like Bethany, had, she grew up in Hawaii and her passion was surfing. And, and she was on track to become a professional surfer. But, but on uh, October 31st, Halloween 2003, at Tunnels Beach in Kauai, one of the most beautiful places in the world, a 14-foot tiger shark attacked her. Out there in that bay, she was with her best friend and her best friend's father, and they, and they quickly got her to shore. They did the best they could to kind of stop the bleeding. She lost 60% of her blood. As she's headed to the hospital, uh, something really neat happened. Bethany had grown up in a Christian home. She'd been a Christian since she was five years old. And, but as she's rushed to the hospital, and as just kind of all the, the shock and of the trauma of it all is setting in, one of the paramedics that day was, was a believer. And he gently reaches down and whispers in her ear that God will never leave you or forsake you. <laughs> Pretty good paramedic. In that moment, she was able to turn to Jesus for help. She was able to wait on the Lord for her salvation. And in that, she was able to find hope in that moment. She was able to find happiness in that moment. Pretty remarkable part of the story. But a month later, she was out surfing again. Two years later, she uh, won a world championship. Bethany's now married. She's the mother of three boys and a, and a brand new uh, baby girl. She's a professional surfer, and she ministers now to teenage girls through a ministry that she calls the Ohana Mentorship Program. Here, here's what Bethany says. I've been able to overcome some of the most challenging obstacles because of the grace of God and because of His plan. I know without a doubt that with him, I am unstoppable. And I want you to know that you can be unstoppable too. Friends, 1 Samuel 11, it reminds us that even in our rocky starts, we can still wait upon the Lord to work salvation. We, we can still find hope in him in those moments. We can still find happiness in him in those moments. Kids, do you ever get discouraged by making the same mistakes over and over again? Your parents get discouraged because they make the same mistakes over and over again. 
You ever get frustrated when you try your best and it's not good enough? Do you ever have rocky starts? In those moments, probably somebody good to remember is Peter. Do you remember the disciple Peter? There were really high, great moments in Peter's life, proclaiming the gospel faithfully. He walked on water until he didn't, right? There's also these low moments in Peter's life. There's a moment where he denies Christ himself. But the key is, is not Peter, but but the good news is Jesus. How does Jesus respond to Peter's failures? Do you remember that after Jesus was resurrected, he forgave Peter and he restored Peter? In other words, Jesus died on the cross in order to forgive you once for all, meaning that he keeps forgiving you. You see, Jesus died on the cross to give you salvation over and over and over again. Jesus died on the cross to restore you again and again and again. Kids, Jesus does not expect perfection from you. What he expects is that you, that when you stumble, that you will wait on the Lord to work salvation. That's what he expects. He doesn't expect perfection from you. And when you wait on the Lord for your salvation... You're going to find hope, and you're going to find happiness. You see, listen, if you live your life trying to be perfect, that's a failed experiment. and for, that, That's a hopeless experiment. It's not going to work. You're never going to live up at, at something and at some point. And if your hope is in yourself, you're going to become hopeless. It, it's going to rob your joy. It's going to rob your happiness. Jesus offers something better. He offers something that is based upon his salvation. That's how you experience hope. And that's how you experience happiness. We need to see King Saul buckle under these burdens. We need to see that because we do the same thing, right? But Saul's not the good news of 1 Samuel 11. You see, more importantly, we need to see the Lord bring salvation through King Saul because it helps us to wait on the Lord for our salvation. That's where we find hope. That's where we find happiness, no matter our circumstances. Friends, in the face of rocky starts, God does not abandon his covenant promises. He's still with you. He's still for you. He's still working salvation through his people and for his people. Therefore, friends, find hope in him. Find happiness in him. And in the face of failures and in the face of burdens, wait on the Lord for your salvation. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I, I thank you for King Saul's life. I thank you for its imperfections. We can identify with King Saul. But Lord, I, I thank you that King Saul is not our salvation. You are. Lord, may we be a people, no matter our circumstances, may we be a people that turn to you for salvation. Find our hope for the future, a good future in you, not in ourselves. And as a result, Lord, experience great happiness, great joy, great rejoicing for eternity. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen.